This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Uh, well, every once in a while, I get to perform a, a marriage ceremony, and it's a, it's a joy to walk with couples through that, that journey as we go through uh, some marriage prep, and we spend time talking about what a, a good marriage looks like and the challenges of marriage, and we go through this, uh, this beautiful ceremony. Often we gather in this room to talk about that commitment. Uh, in fact, there's a couple in the room uh, right now who got married uh, here, the, the Wises. By the way, uh, Maddie is scheduled to deliver her baby on May 13th, so be praying for her as they get ready for that. Uh, but it's, it's exciting to, to join with couples. And there's these phrases in the, the marriage ceremony that says, uh, I, Matt, take you, Brandy, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. So the husband makes that statement, and the wife makes that statement, and then there's this part where it says, I, I, Matt, take this ring, or I say to Brandy, Brandy, take this ring as a sign of my constant love, a symbol of my enduring faithfulness, and a reminder of the promises I've made to you. There's this beautiful part of the service where we take this ring that's made of a precious metal that reminds us that the love of God doesn't stain or tarnish over time. It's a circle that reminds us of the all-encompassing nature of the love of God. And we make a promise and we offer a ring. And part of that promise is that this ring is a symbol of my enduring faithfulness. The ring is a symbol of enduring faithfulness. Just think about that phrase. What does that phrase really mean? It It signifies basically, simply, that faithfulness is enduring. Faithfulness means a firmness. We just sang, great is thy faithfulness. That wasn't an accident, by the way. It's a firmness, a constancy, a trustworthiness. In the Old Testament, the root word for faithfulness carries the meaning of to strengthen, to support, to hold up. In a physical sense, it's used as pillars that support the doors in the temple. These posts had to be firmly rooted to support these massive doors, right? You know, if you've ever made a fence with a a fence post or a gate, that one that holds the the gate has to be really, really strong down deep in the ground because that gate is, all the weight is being held by that one post. And so when someone is faithful, we know that they're true, that they're trustworthy, and that they can be counted on. Enduring faithfulness, then, means the kind of faithfulness that isn't just stand up in the good times, but it also stands up in the hard times. To endure is to be able to withstand difficulty, stress, and even temptation. And so if you just think about enduring faithfulness, if you were watching TV, you would think that it's in short supply. The way that marriage is represented in TV and film and in culture just presents to us a different picture, not one of faithfulness and not one of endurance. And we look at the rates of divorce in our own country, even within the church, the over-sexualization of our country, it makes us feel like we're living in 
a parallel universe to what is being asked of us at the marital ceremony. But thankfully, Jesus speaks to us about these really important matters. And I realize that these are subjects that are uh, difficult. Uh, divorce and, and adultery are challenging subjects. And we're, some uh, commentators put these passages together. And I thought it's way better to deal with these in one Sunday and not on Mother's Day. And I know that we, depending on our age, whether we're 80 or 18 or 8, are all coming at this from a different point of view. And so I'm trying to distill some truth and still provide this in a PG-friendly uh, environment for those of us who aren't uh, in that upper age category. But Jesus talks to us about these things, and he wants us to grow in faith and to know about his grace. And so it's important for us to take these matters upon us. And if we want to transform the culture... If we want God's love to pervade the whole world, then it's got to pervade our lives and in our marriages and in uh, what we look at and what we see. And so we want to take these things to heart and to know uh, that God wants to guide us. Um, I also know that in, in every uh, corner of, of, our, of our country and almost every family, there are many who have experienced the difficulty and the hardship of divorce. I know that was something that I uh, experienced as, um, as a young adult in my own family. It's an extremely painful thing to go through. I was talking with a friend that one time said, try to imagine how hard it is to go through divorce. It's a hundred times harder. But know this, that our God is a God of grace. He's a God of healing. He's a God of restoration. He's a God of love. And so he provides these words for us because he wants to give an earnest warning to those who are contemplating or considering getting married. He wants to provide a solemn admonition to those who are thinking about getting a divorce. And he wants an opportunity for everybody, regardless of our situation, married or single, divorced, widowed, no matter what we are, he wants us all to come to him with our brokenness and our areas of struggle, our areas of hurt, to be reminded that he's a God of grace. Uh, John Stott, who is a famous churchman, uh, who would have been 100 years old uh, last week, famously said, we're all broken sexually. It just manifests itself in different ways. So there is no judgment here. There's only a sincere call to repentance and to grace as we consider these challenging words of Jesus. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, I think, is making two, uh, or he's making one challenge to two different kinds of people, right? The first challenge, or the first kind of person, is um, the one who is a religious person, who is really concerned with appearing righteous. They want to be seen as faithful to God, but they're hesitant to actually really deal with the radical sinfulness that's pervasive in their heart. They want to look good, but are unwilling to address the truth that they aren't good. And Jesus repeatedly challenges that kind of person in the Bible and in the room, right? In us. He's reminding us that God's law and his standards are holy. He, he's elevating what the law says. So the Sermon on the Mount essentially is a mountain that we can't climb. There's no way for us to get to the top of the mountain because Jesus' standards are just way too high. And that's why we need him. Because Jesus has 
climb the mountain. He was on that hill. But Jesus is challenging us in another way as well. He's challenging those who really don't consider themselves to be religious. This person says, well, just throw off the law of God. You, you don't really have to borrow that or, or hold to that. It's an old-fashioned, old way of thinking, and it's not applying to us anymore. Those are old words, and they don't really make a difference for us. You can essentially come up with your own path, follow your own way, and just do what feels right in your heart. Kind of a Jiminy Cricket theology. Let your conscience be your guide. This person says, essentially, though, they become religious because they say, I'm the one who makes up the rules, and if I follow my own rules, well, then I'm righteous. And if you don't follow my rules, well, then you're not righteous. They're essentially becoming a religious person of a different kind. But Jesus shatters these truths because he says, we don't make the law. The law comes from outside us. It's revealed to us through God's word. Jesus essentially is saying to the religious person or the non-religious person, I'm raising the standard of what it means to such a way that you know you can't do it. That's why I've come to redeem and to save and to restore. He's saying essentially that everyone is guilty of the seventh commandment. That is, do not commit adultery. Do not even think in an unfaithful manner. Lust is a craving desire for what's forbidden. Jesus is saying to us what's powerful because he says if you even have a lustful thought in your heart, it's as though you've committed that act in the flesh. Uh, there's this old document that Presbyterians have used for a long time called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's uh, these uh, folks that got together to say, what does the scripture really teach about all manner of subjects? And they put it in a question and answer format called uh, catechism. And one of those questions asks, what are the duties required in the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery? And here's part of the answer. The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others. Watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty, in apparel. Question 139 asks, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? In part, it says, the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment are all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications or listening to, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, allowing, tolerating, the keeping of stews, it's a brothel. Had to look it up. Unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancings, Instagram, stage plays, and all their provocations. No, it doesn't say Instagram in here. Provocations or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. That's really just, wow, it kind of expands what the seventh commandment says. It's convicting when you read through that. So this is Jesus is saying, essentially, that the law has been expanded to be larger than we can imagine. How, how, do we, how do we stop the thoughts in our head or the actions that we take that are unpleasing to God? Jesus doesn't just say, hey, you know, you might want to think about doing something different. He doesn't say, just do it as long as you don't get caught. He says, if your eye causes you to stumble, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
So these strong statements challenge us to take drastic action to be pure and holy before God. And so, if Jesus is saying in this way to take a drastic step to ensure purity in your own life, what, what, is, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us when we think about the kind of content that we're consuming, that we're looking at, that we're listening to, the kind of books that we read, the things that we look at on the internet? And with today's technology, we have so much more access. Our culture glorifies these images more and more pervasively, which makes them harder to resist. And there's even part of culture now that's saying, hey, look, just throw everything off, literally, and be yourself. And that's a good, positive thing. But Jesus is saying, in order to prevent these things from taking over your life, you've got to take a drastic step. Uh, there was a movie that came out not too long ago uh, called 127 Hours. And it described, it was a story of a guy who had been hiking out west by himself, which is something that you're really not supposed to do. But he was hiking out west and he slipped and fell into a crevasse and he fell and caught his arm in between a, a rock face and a boulder. And he was stuck. And you can tell, because of the name of the movie, what happened. It's 127 hours. And he's in there without food, without water, likely without cell service. No one's going to come to get him. And he's stuck. What happened in the 126th hour? Well, he took his dull pocket knife and removed his own arm. Why? Because if he didn't do that, he was going to die in that crevasse. He had to take a drastic step. What's the drastic step that you need to take to ensure purity in your life? Please don't cut off your arm unless you absolutely have to. But what's the step that you need to take? Maybe it's uh, getting rid of a computer or a phone. Maybe it's installing a filter that will help you. Maybe it's stopping purchasing certain kinds of material or watching certain shows. What is it? It's up to you to learn and discern. Um, but God wants you to, to be pure and to be uh, restored and let the grace of Jesus compel you and, and move you uh, to do that. Jesus then deals also with the issue of divorce. And in those days, there was a real controversy about, uh, among the Jewish rabbis over the grounds for a divorce. The Mosaic Law says if a man has, quote, found something improper in his wife, divorce can proceed through the writing of a bill of divorce. So God, through the Mosaic Law, granted and regulated divorce. But the question was, what was something improper? What does that mean? It's open for interpretation. One rabbi would say that it means that anything at all that the husband didn't like, he could divorce his wife, which would put her in a vulnerable situation, right? Because now she's divorced and she doesn't have any means of support, the, the social stigma that's attached to that. But if the husband wanted to do it, he could do it. Another taught that it only referred to gross sexual immorality. So one school takes a liberal view of marriage, saying that the, the relationship in marriage is just for your personal pleasure and convenience, and it can be dissolved whenever it's not working. The other school takes a very conservative view of marriage, that it's a binding relationship for commitment and protection, which could only be dissolved under the most severe circumstances. But we see that the Pharisees, those people that tend to be strict on the outward side, they take 
what's considered the liberal view. And Jesus is challenging them. He's saying, no, marriage is a lifelong covenant. Because what happens is it creates a new unit, emotional, spiritual, personal, and physical. The marriage bond changes you physically, and the individual loses their independence in a way. It's not just an association to reach mutual goals. So think about this, the difference between a contract and a, a covenant. We sign a contract when we want to limit our liability. We enter into a covenant when we're willing to give our unlimited responsibility. We sign a contract when we want an agreement that will serve our purposes for a specific amount of time. We enter into a covenant when we say we're going to make a lifelong commitment. The reality is for sin and brokenness, divorce is allowed, but only in extreme situations as a desire last resort. At the end of the wedding, I say what God has joined together, let no one separate, which quotes Matthew 19. The only way to separate any parts of one flesh is by amputation. And what's crazy is that here, the most legalistic people who are trying to present themselves as holy are, doing it because, are allowing for divorce because of their own selfish desires. And so Jesus in this is revealing the hardness of our hearts and their hearts. See, in our culture, there must only be room for divorce if and only if it's got biblical grounds. Uh, infidelity is in this passage. Elsewhere, Paul talks about uh, desertion. I would say also that uh, relationships where there's significant abuse, that's a kind of desertion that happens within a marriage. And there's a gray area, and it takes discernment and acknowledgement, understanding with counsel, wise counsel to discernment, is this the appropriate thing for us to take? And those are difficult decisions that I know that some of you had to make. But I know this, that many people have been through these things as they come to the grace of God, they realize no matter where you are in that process, there's grace and there's mercy and there's restoration. There's forgiveness, there's hope, and there's opportunity for reconciliation no matter what the relationships are. And we know that marriages aren't easy, even if you're not married. You know married people, and it's not an easy thing to do. And so when I say to young couples, when I, I get ready to marry them, I say one of the things you're going to realize is getting married is like lifting up a big mirror and revealing who you are. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's a wonderful thing, but it reveals to you your character. It reveals to you your selfishness and your, your struggle. Now, not everyone should be married. Paul says that. Some are called to singleness, and that's a wonderful gift that God has given to some. And we want to celebrate that in the church and to celebrate those among us who are single. Sidebar here, and those who aren't married, we need to make sure that we're including singles into the family of God in the same way that we include couples. We want to extend that family connection to all people in our community, whether you're Married, divorced, single, widowed, whatever the case is. We're all one community of faith. But you will face struggle if you're married. <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> but when you put Christ at the center, when you put Jesus first, and he's the one that provides the wisdom and the guidance and the grace to move forward. Because see, ultimately, it's not about our enduring faithfulness. When Betty Sue and I were talking about the songs, because we, we think through, what's a song that would fit here? And Will, we talk about, what song would fit with this? And sometimes they fit perfectly and you didn't even notice. Uh, sometimes they, they don't. But we were talking about faithfulness, and she said, but that song is about God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. 
And I was like, that's exactly right. Because ultimately, when we're thinking about enduring faithfulness, it's not about our faithfulness, it's about God. Psalm 117, a chapter with only two verses says, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. You see, even when you're not faithful, God is. For married couples, the ring is a sign of their enduring faithfulness, but for God, what's the sign of enduring faithfulness? It's the cross. It's where God most fully demonstrates his love for us. We of wandering hearts and divided affections, lustful thoughts, are confronted with the faithfulness of God most powerfully and wonderfully on the cross. For there, in spite of our disinterested, distracted, disloyal love, God has pursued us and made a way for us to enter in anew into the covenant that he established with his blood. On the cross, the unfaithful sinner meets the one who showed the ultimate enduring faithfulness, which is consummated in the wedding supper of the Lamb, of which we will take a part this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a great wedding feast at the end of a long and sometimes painful engagement between Christ and his church. This feast marks the beginning of the eternal, unbroken marriage relationship of perfect fellowship and love that we will all participate in in Christ, in glory. I've shared this story before, but it just so powerfully represents this transformation that can happen, the transformation that we want to see happen in our world. Uh, Louis Zamperini was a World War II hero, and on a mission over the Pacific in 1943, his plane crashed into the ocean, and he killed almost everyone on board. For 47 days, they floated in this shark-infested water, and Louie and one other survivor, when they finally found land, they were about to land on the beach, and a Japanese boat picked them up. They endured uh, two and a half years of imprisonment, which consisted almost constant beatings, humiliation, and torture. And after the war, he'd suffered PTSD. He was an alcoholic, and his wife, Cynthia, she had lost all hope for their marriage. By the way, he was an amazing runner uh, in the Olympics. But he spent most of his time following that experience, thinking of and dreaming about how to get back to Japan somehow to murder a man called the Bird, who was the most vicious torturer of them all. And one night, Louis Zamperini dreamed that he had the bird looming over him. And so he reached out to defend himself in this dream. And he was awakened by a scream. And when he woke up, he was straddling his pregnant wife with his hands around her neck, thinking that he was strangling the bird. And she said, I'm getting a divorce. I can't do this anymore. He continued with depression and self-destructive behavior. But then his wife came back to him and said, I don't want a divorce. She had heard Billy Graham share the gospel. And she came and received Jesus into her life. And she asked Louis, will you go and please hear this man? Finally, after saying no, he went, he relented, and he went to listen to Billy Graham share the gospel. And he realized that he too was sinful, but that Jesus was holy and was inviting him into eternal life. And he gave his life to God. He says, I have felt a love flood my life, delivered him immediately from alcoholism, and he was even able to forgive his captors in Japan. And he actually went to Japan and preached the gospel and tried to have a meeting with the bird to extend forgiveness to him. He had been delivered 
by the work of God through this sudden authentic change in his life, even his marriage. He had literally been tortured and his inner shame and anger and fear had eaten up his ability to love and to serve others. You see, each one of us comes into a marriage or into relationships with a distorted inner being. We're ravaged by lust or, or this belief that if, if once we can find the person who will really love us, then our lives will find true happiness. Then we get into the marriage and we realize we're married to a sinner just like us. But it's when we acknowledge that we too are broken, that we too need to be made whole, not by our job, not by our children, not by our marriage, but by the one who was enduringly faithful we can finally become whole. And that's the message that we want to live out in our relationships. And that's the message that we want to live out in the world to invite people to come to know Jesus. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.